It is another beautiful morning here at First Baptist Church of Edna with our youth and adult leaders as we continue our study of forerunners of the faith, learning about the patristic era of church history. We're in lesson four of the forerunners of the faith workbook titled Contending for the Faith. And today we're going to pick up right where we left off in that lesson by transitioning into a discussion of Justin Martyr and getting an introduction to the uh, patristic polemicists that God raised up to preserve the purity of doctrine and worship in the church in the uh, preliminary centuries of church history. But before we look into those details today, as normal, I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer. And I do need a volunteer to read our passage of focus just to orient our minds to this lesson found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. So who would like to read that passage after I pray? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Wit, thank you, buddy, for your willingness to read. Let me pray, and then Wit will read that passage for us. Let's go to the Lord. Lord God, we are excited to be in your house today. We've enjoyed some fellowship this morning, some laughs, some um, jokes, and, and God, our, our hearts are just overwhelmed with happiness and joy to, to be amongst one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, to do life together, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And Father, I pray that as we now transition into our time of lesson and group discussion, I pray that we would retain this level of energy to accurately understand the timeless and eternal truths that pertain to this era of church history and how they apply just as much to us living in 2022. God, I pray you'd give me wisdom and direction to guide and facilitate a fruitful conversation today. I pray for our students that you would give them a zeal and an eagerness to go deep into the truths we'll be discussing today, to ask questions as they feel led to do so, to respond to the discussion questions, Father. And even if they, even if they don't normally get involved, Father, I pray that today might be a day where they, they do and, and they, um, they just encounter the truths of Scripture with a newfound delight. For those who've already worshipped corporately this morning, Father, I pray for your, your blessing upon them as they depart from this place to spend time with family and friends before beginning a new week. And I also pray for us who are preparing to go and worship you corporately that you would even now begin to prepare our hearts to receive um, the truths from the songs we sing, from the prayers that are prayed, and from the message that Walter preaches. I pray we would be receptive to those realities and that we'd be transformed by them by the end of our time here at FBC Edna. We pray all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so um, Witt, go ahead and read that text for us. Yes, please. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of very good. So how do you think in that passage, just very briefly, how is that relevant to the task or the discipline of apologetics? Just by way of review, can somebody give me a short definition of the term apologetics? Um, it's the 
What do we mean when we talk about apologetics? Michael, you got your hand up? Yeah, defending Scripture or defending the faith, right? So apologetics is to give a defense of the faith, a reasoned argument for what we believe and why. So how do you think this text is relevant to the idea or the task of giving a defense for what we believe? It's in verse 5. I'll give you a hint there. What do we see in verse 5? What's being described in the first half of the verse? Yeah, okay, so we're destroying anything raised against God. Any intellectual argument or belief system that's raised against God, okay? We are proactively dismantling those things. And then what are we doing? What's the second half of the verse says? Right? So, so we're going we're gonna to take down these false beliefs through logic and reason. And then we're going to provide, on the other hand, we are going to provide new thoughts, new beliefs, new convictions that are obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing in apologetics. We are taking away or we are dismantling, we're disarming, we are destroying any belief system that is in opposition to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then in doing so, we're coming back with truths that are in keeping with his Lordship. That's what we're doing in apologetics. And Lord willing, we're going to now look at one of the earliest apologists who did just that, who, um, as it were, destroyed speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and in doing so, took every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and encouraged other believers to follow in his example. But before we do that, we weren't able to cover the last discussion question from our previous lesson, and you'll notice that it's in one of those boxes that has the heading for discussion. If you've got your workbook open to where we're at in our curriculum, you'll notice the discussion question is is multi-part. I'll read it, and we'll discuss that as a group. So the question says this, how do unbelievers view Christians in our society? Is their perception accurate or inaccurate? And what should believers do to make a defense in the midst of a secular culture? How should believers engage in apologetics? It's essentially what the last part of that question is asking. So let's take it apart one bite at a time. How do unbelievers view Christians in our society? How would you describe that? Colby. Uh, I think that unbelievers or people that are not just in the circle of Christianity see us as kind of like a cult, a cult that's based off of an ideal that they don't particularly understand. It. Sure. Absolutely. Some completely foreign to their beliefs or understanding. Really kind of weird, right? Hannah. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. 
any other thoughts? I think I thought I saw one hand get raised, but kind of put down when Hannah started talking. <laughs> hey, all right. So Hannah, Hannah, I'm going to come back to I'm going to come back to what you said because that's relevance to Christians as well. Um, but are there any other thoughts on that first aspect of the discussion question before we move on to the second part? How do you perceive Christians? Or excuse me, how do you perceive unbelievers um, understanding or regarding Christians in our world today? I mean, just think about your people at school that you know, people in your inner circle who are unbelievers. How do you think they view you or view Christians as a whole? So, I mean, I've literally been called a fool for being a Christian mm-hmm. by a, a member on a sports team yeah. that I played on. I mean, he claimed he pretended to be a believer for his parents. Mm. Like, did not fear God at all. Acts one way around his parents, but completely different by himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so it tells me that some people, that they view it as a game sometimes. Yeah, just just kind of something we do on Sundays. Um, Do I want to go? Yeah, I'm going to go down this rabbit trail. So I was listening to a lecture from a man by the name of Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson is the greatest apologist to ever live. Um, He lived only 40, it's either 44, it's between 44 years and 48 years. I always mess up his age, but he didn't live to see the age of 50. But he's the greatest defender of the Christian faith who ever lived. Um, and if you go on YouTube, you can listen to him debating the top atheist and um, unbelieving scholars of the 20th century. And I mean, he just runs roughshod over them. Um, not in a negative way, not in a demeaning way, but just showing that Christianity is a far greater system of philosophy, theology, um, it provides better grounds for science and so on. It's superior in every category. I've already sent your mom the stuff, size, so don't. Greg Monson, um, your mom has all of it. But anyways, he he talked he talked about this is important in what Sai was saying. He talked about how many students are being trained to think this way. You go to college, and you're. Secular professors will say that on Sunday you turn your brain off as a Christian. You engage in a hyper-spiritual, hyper-emotional, utterly foolish act of worshiping a God of which there's no existence or there's no evidence for his existence. But then your brain turns back on Monday through Friday and sometimes Saturday when you actually begin engaging in academic activities or in an actual job that's relevant to the here and the now. And that is a view that many of you guys are going to be exposed to as soon as you get to college. Many of your classmates, many of your professors are going to say, hey, you know what? If you want to believe in Christianity, you know, I don't believe in it. I think honestly, I think it's kind of dumb and, and foolish was the word that that Cy used to describe how one of his teammates described his faith. They say, yeah, yeah, you know what? You guys turn your brains off on Sunday because there's just no scientific or empirical evidence for anything related to God. But then when you come back to the real world on Monday and and, and work your job and go to class and, and do your ordinary weekly activities, then you're actually beginning to think again. And they see no, and here's the problem, they see no issue 
with there being no relevance to what you do in your worship and what you believe in regard to God. They see no issue in having those beliefs, and yet, from their perspective, them being entirely false. For them, it's, hey, do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you feel good. But it's, we all know it's not true. What really matters is what can be perceived by our senses and by our experience. So that's really what's important. But as a Christian, what we're tasked with doing is saying, no, my friend, we believe everything that we do Monday through Saturday has direct relevance to what we're doing on Sunday when we worship the one true living God. We believe every aspect of our worldview is relevant to our faith and to what we do on a week-to-week basis. And I wish Hannah was here so I could touch on what she said. I'm going to do it anyways, though, for the sake of... Uh, yeah, but we got to move on. So she'll, if she listens to the recording, she can, she can hear it. To the listener, uh, she, the person who I wanted to revisit her idea left the room, so I'm going to go ahead and touch on that. So guys, here's the reality. Here's what you have to realize about the Christian worldview and its relationship to believers and unbelievers. There is nobody on this earth except for Jesus Christ, nobody who's ever walked this earth, who's been able to consistently live out their worldview. Nobody. For the unbeliever, they borrow from the Christian worldview in order to live, move, and have their being in God's world because they have to play by God's rules as the creator of that world. So they pick and choose aspects of the Christian worldview that they like that allows them to function, the laws of logic, assumptions about uniformity in nature, assumptions about the dignity of life. They make basic assumptions that it's consistent with the Christian worldview to exist in the world created by the Christian God, but they at the same time reject those aspects of the Christian worldview that directly contradicts their own lifestyle. If they're a homosexual, they reject the Christian God and the Christian worldview. They reject aspects of that that confront and and, and speak against their lifestyle of homosexuality. If they're somebody who is an unmarried person who's living with their boyfriend or their significant other, or if it's, a boy, if it's a boy living with their girlfriend, they don't have to just be homosexual. You can be a heterosexual person in an unmarried relationship, but they suppress the aspects of the Christian worldview that speak out against them walking in sin, walking in lust, walking in sexual immorality outside the covenant of marriage. Um, it could be something like, something as simple as, Lying. The unbeliever doesn't believe they have to give an account to a God someday, so they lie and cheat and manipulate people. But all the while doing so and telling their lies, they're using the laws of logic that are only made possible by the God of Christianity. So the unbeliever is a walking contradiction in regards to their application of an unbelieving worldview and also living in such a way that shows that they borrow from the Christian worldview as well. But Christians do the same thing. Every time you and I commit sin, we are living inconsistently with our worldview. Sure, we recognize intellectually all these realities about the Christian worldview. We show through our most basic assumptions that we believe in the God who's created all things and sustains all things and has revealed himself in the Bible. But every time you and I commit a sin, we're living and acting as if God doesn't exist. We're living and acting as if we don't have to give an account before the God who's created us. So what's important to note is all people fail to live consistently with their purported worldview. And that's why the gospel is necessary. 
because there's only been one person who's ever lived consistently, perfectly with the one true worldview, which is based on what God has revealed himself in Scripture, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's a great, when we do apologetics, it's a great opportunity to point out to our unbelieving friends that, hey, I'm right there with you. I fail to live out my own worldview consistently. That doesn't make it less true. It just goes to show you our need for Jesus, our need for forgiveness, our need for the power of God. Anyways, that probably took some time to go down that tangent, but I think it was necessary for you to hear. And I think it really, I think it really gets to the crux of the task of apologetics. Apologetics is so much more than just winning an argument. It's about pointing people to the gospel and their need for salvation and their need for transformation. And it's about showing us, it's about showing them how we as Christians fail and how we need grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're no better than the unbelievers when we engage in the discipline of apologetics. All we are is a representative of the kingdom of God to point them to the king and to the savior that they so desperately need. So, let's move on now to Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. You'll notice Roman numeral three in your workbooks. Justin Martyr, it says that he died around the year 165. And just by way of clarification, his last name wasn't actually Martyr. We don't know what his last name was. Um, We call him Justin Martyr because he died a martyr's death. So, um, for the rest of the day, we'll be calling him Justin Martyr, but just know that Martyr wasn't actually his last name. But Justin was born around the year 100 AD. That's a blank in your workbook. He was born around the year 100 AD into a non-Christian family. And as a young man, Justin searched for truth in various philosophical systems. But he was never satisfied until he met an elderly Christian man who explained the gospel to him. From that point forward... Justin embraced Christianity as the true philosophy. And shortly after becoming a Christian, Justin would move on to Rome where he started a training school. And during that training school, one of the key methods of defending the faith was using the concept of the divine logos or the word from John 1 as a way to build bridges to those who were steeped in Greek philosophy. So if you have a workbook, Those blanks there that you need to fill out in association with Justin Martyr. First blank is 100 AD. Second blank is the divine Logos, L-O-G-O-S. The divine Logos. And then, of course, the word Logos translates to word. Now, as we begin to introduce Justin here, I want us to talk about a very important question. And we've kind of touched on it already, particularly in that tangent that I went on. But my question is this. Do you agree with Justin that Christianity is to be regarded as a philosophy? Why or why not? Should we regard Christianity as a philosophy? Why or why not? Michael. Can you define philosophy? Okay, philosophy. Let's take it apart. Um, the word Sophia, uh, or the Greek word Sophia, means wisdom. And the, the, the first part of philosophy ph- comes from a term phileo, which means love. So, so philosophy literally means 
lover of wisdom. So... So I think lover, lover of knowledge, lover of wisdom, that's what we're going for when we talk about philosophy. No, I, I don't think so. Because it's more, it's more, you have to have more than just like knowledge and wisdom. Like, I feel like an atheist would say that it's, this is just a philosophy, but it's more okay. okay, I like what you said at the very end there. It is a philosophy, but more than that. Okay, Ellie. More of a lifestyle relationship than a philosophy. Very good. Any other thoughts? A lot of knowledge can be gained from Christianity, yes. But like she said, it's more than just learning from the Bible and just putting it into your lifestyle because you need to learn to love God by yourself and not just... Yes, the Bible's good, but you can't just use that in this sort of lifestyle. You have to learn to live within the binds of Christianity itself and learn to love God as your creator yeah. instead of just going off of text and just going through the motions. So you have to take your you take what you know intellectually and then you have to you have to actually make that knowledge your actual convictions as evidenced by how you live, right? Not just something I know and I have all this ethereal head knowledge, but it's something that I do know, but it's something that I live out because I, I love God in my heart. Is that what you're going for there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, is, is everyone shared their thoughts before I give you the right answer? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm just messing with you guys. Those are all really good insights. Um, and, and, and frankly, I, I probably have holes in, in my definitions and, and what I'm going to give you. I'm standing on the shoulders of people. Good. These are all great thoughts. Michael, were you going to say something? This is a great discussion. What do you think I'm going to say in response? Wait, so if, it, wait, if everything was just a philosophy, then wouldn't there be like no truth? Because if everything could be right, nothing could be wrong. It's all interpretation. Okay, so well, we're really going to go down rabbit trails. Um, so with what you just said, if everything could be potentially right then everything could be potentially wrong um that is that is true in in a in a very real sense it is true that um every known philosophy in the world is wrong it's possible however if you hold to a view called realism um which is the belief that that there is true things in the world um, as, as, as it presently stands, that God has created truth in the world and that it's possible to find that truth, then I believe it's very highly unlikely that nothing in the world 
is potentially the one true way, if that makes sense. There's got to be something out there that's true, in other words. Everything out there can't be false. Um, there, is, there is something in the world that's true. As a realist, I take that belief. Now, as Christians, we know Jesus claimed, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when it comes to Jesus, what he's saying, he's saying everything out there is wrong if it doesn't line up with me. So as Christians, that's the kind of radical belief we hold to. We're saying that we believe that everything that is not Christ is wrong. Everything that doesn't pertain to Jesus is false. So I'm going to let me let me put some clarification around everything here. And I loved what you said earlier with Christianity at its most basic essence is a philosophy, but it's more than that. It's more than just head knowledge. But it is at its basic essence philosophy. And let me explain why that's the case. Historically, every philosophical system must contain these three basic components. It must have a robust system of metaphysics. That is, it must have an understanding of reality. That's all metaphysics is. Meta means overarching, overarching and then the, the term for, for physics is reality. So overarching understanding of reality. And Christianity has that, Right? We have an understanding of our origin. We have an understanding of God. We have an understanding of who we are in relation to one another and in relation to God. We have an understanding of where things are going. We have an understanding of how things got the way they are. Right? We have an overarching understanding of reality. So metaphysics. The second pillar of any philosophy is epistemology. And that terminology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? How is knowledge possible? That's epistemology. On what basis can we know anything at all? Well, according to Christian faith, knowledge is only possible because God has created us in his image. God is infinite in his knowledge. Although we are finite, we have the capacity to reason. We have the capacity to know things truly. We have the capacity to think God's thoughts after himself. We have the ability to use laws of logic to reason cogently and in a way that's not contradictory. We have an epistemology. We have a basis for our knowledge. So we have a basic for we have a basis for reality, metaphysics. We have a basis for epistemology, knowledge. And then the third pillar is ethics. We have a basic we have a basis for moral absolutes. We have a standard of right and wrong. So at, in that sense Christianity is a philosophy. And as, the, as an apologist, your job is to show that Christianity is not just one of many that somebody can choose from. Christianity is the one true philosophy which makes living in reality even possible. That's the task of the apologist. You have to show the unbeliever that if the Christian worldview wasn't true, there's no objective basis for metaphysics. There's no objective basis for understanding reality as such. There's no objective basis for understanding how knowledge is possible. And there's no moral absolutes. There's no ethical standards. We don't have time to get into every possible system of philosophy to show how that's the case. There's far greater men than I to show you how that's the case. But 
I am persuaded, not just because I believe the Bible, but because I have heard the, and I have read the best of Christian apologists go up against the best of Muslim and atheistic and Roman Catholic and so on. I've heard the best that Christianity has to offer go up against the best of what other belief systems have to offer. And I've seen biblical Christianity come out on top every single time because God is true and everything that is not found in God, everything that's not consistent with God is false. Let God be found true and every man a liar. That's the reality. So listen to Bonson. Um, maybe this summer, I've talked with the youth committee about this. Um, there, there's uh, a desire for possibly giving you guys a crash course in apologetics. Go looking at worldviews, looking at um, defending the Christian faith. Because when we start up our evangelism uh, ministry here, going to Victoria College and going to um, Victoria and Port Lavaca and other cities to pass out gospel tracts and do evangelism, we need to know what we believe, why we believe it. We need to know what other people believe so we can speak intelligently to some of their most basic held convictions. But back to our point here, what do you think about all of this? I mean, did, did, did my comments there help y'all out any thinking of Christianity as a philosophy? Again, more than a philosophy, just more than head knowledge, but as bare essence, it is a system of knowledge. Y'all, y'all agree, disagree? If you, if you don't agree, that's fine. I know it's kind of, it's weird. It's the first time you're hearing this. I've, I reacted kind of the same way you guys did because growing up you think of philosophy as you know man how, how could anybody want to study philosophy because it's just all about just knowledge and, and weird theories and God's nowhere near the equation well historically if you look at the philosophers up until the enlightenment most philosophers throughout history have tried to prove the existence of God and have tried to explain reality from a theistic worldview. It may not be Christian, but it was certainly not atheistic. It was theistic largely until the Enlightenment, until David Hume, Immanuel Kant came around and, and started playing games with the way things were done for the first two millennia of philosophy. Any questions or comments on that? If you, and, and feel free to talk. Uh, this, is, this is what we're here for, discussion. Questions, comments... What are the three pillars of philosophy? Yep. Yep. That long E word, epistemology. Uh, knowledge. How, how do we know what we know? What basis do we have for knowing anything at all? Is knowledge possible? So on. Metaphysics, overarching understanding of reality, epistemology, study. And basis for knowledge, ethics, study and basis of morality, moral absolutes, moral standards. Good stuff. All right, so we're moving on now with Justin uh, Buznitz here in our curriculum notes that though some of Justin's works have been lost, his first apology, second apology, and dialogue with Trifo have survived. He gives us a brief overview of those works. He says that Justin's first apology was a defense of the Christian faith addressed to the Roman emperor Antonius Pius along with the Roman Senate. 
His second apology was also addressed to the Roman Senate, and these treatises might be thought of as open letters to the government in which Justin explains why Christianity should not be the subject of imperial persecution. His dialogue with Trypho records his conversation with a Jewish man about whether Jesus truly is the Messiah. Justin musters numerous arguments from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is both the promised Savior and the divine Son of God. Now, question for group discussion. Where would you go in the Old Testament? Take the New Testament out of the equation. Where would you go in the Old Testament to point people to Jesus? What's the clearest place you could go to? Somebody, imagine you're on the street. Imagine you're going with me. And in the, imagine this fall, fall of 2022, you're with me. We're on the college campus of Victoria. And we're having a dialogue with a sophomore in college there. And they're wanting to know at various places where, I mean, obviously the New Testament claims that Jesus is Messiah. But what, on what basis were they expecting him? Where can we go in the Old Testament? Maybe a, a book or a chapter or whatever. Okay. Genesis twenty-two. Very good. Isaiah. Isaiah. What? What? What's the chapter in Isaiah that we all know about? Fifty-three. That's right. I, and I wrote down Isaiah fifty-three is probably the most clear. In fact, it's so clear that today Jews have done everything they can to take it out of the Hebrew scriptures because it, it literally is impossible not to see Christ in Isaiah. Even if you take redaction theory seriously, like even if you believe that the book of Isaiah wasn't actually written by Isaiah and that it was just progressively developed over centuries after Isaiah would have been on the earth, it still would have been written centuries before Christ came. So even if you take the liberal scholars' views on the authorship of Isaiah, you're still left with a chapter that clearly shows Jesus Christ coming in and accomplishing everything that's laid out in Isaiah 53. That chapter is a slam dunk case in my estimation. Have you heard it's called the chapter the torture chamber of the rabbi? I've not heard that phrase, but I like that. That's good. Torture chamber of the rabbi. And guys, remember, apologetics, very rarely when you defend your faith, very rarely is somebody going to hear what you have to say and say, you know what, you're right. I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to believe in Jesus right now and get baptized. Like, it could happen. It, it does happen rarely. But here's what you're trying to do, guys. You're trying to put a rock in somebody's shoe. And what happens when you get a rock in your shoe? Well, and why do you want to take it out? It's annoying. It's uncomfortable. You have to deal with the rock, right? You want to make it to where they've got to deal with that rock in their shoe. Now, when they deal with it, they, they may reject it. But they, may, they may come to faith. But as an apologist, you're trying to put a rock in somebody's shoe. When their head hits the pillow at night, they're the ones that has to think about what you had to say. And because they've been created in the image of God... Because the law of God's been written on their conscience, because they feel the conviction of what you're telling them, it's going to be awfully hard for them to just suppress that in unrighteousness. Many do, but the more exposure one has to truth, the harder it gets to suppress. That's just the way it works.
Okay, we're moving on now. Talking about Justin here. In his first apology, written around the year 150, Justin describes an early church service. And there is a lengthy excerpt from that first apology in your workbooks that I need a volunteer to read for us. Who would like to read that lengthy excerpt? Hannah, take it. That's right. Amen. All right, so after having read that excerpt from Justin's first apology, let's consider this question. What aspects of Justin's description of a church service during the second century stood out to you? And does it sound similar to what we experience today in church services and church services here in 2022? Sai. Yeah, you heard a reference to the Lord's Supper in there, didn't you? Yep. What else did you see there? They read scripture, scripture, right? They read from both the Old and the New Testament, right? So even as early as the second century, you have at least a working concept in the minds of these Christians of an Old and New Testament canon. Does everybody remember what what, what we mean when we say Old and New Testament canon? Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the rule or the standard of books that pertain to the Old and New Testament, right? So it's the 39 books of the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament canon. 27 books of the New Testament refer to the New Testament canon. Okay, so, so, two, so I've got six components, at least six components of a second century worship service that's consistent with what we see today in the 21st century. So we've, we've seen reading from... The New and the Old Testament, we've seen a participating in the Lord's Supper. What else do we find? Prayer, right? Yeah, fellowship. Pastors preaching. Tithing. And that's all six that I've got. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, uh, Scripture... Yeah, and it's on Sunday. There you go. I don't think we touched on that one either. 
It's on Sunday. So there's a working knowledge at that point that the uh, appointed day for the, for the people of God to gather together to worship is no longer on Saturday. It's on Sunday now, right? So, guys, my, my takeaway from that passage that we just read from Justin, think about this. Like, what we do here at FBC Edna, this isn't just something that we do because your great-grandparents did it here. You know, or it's not just something that, you, that we do because whoever planted this church in the 19th century decided, hey, this sounds like a really cool thing to do, so we're going we're gonna to do worship this way. These basic elements go all the way back to the 100s AD. Like, it's ancient. It's biblical. It's not arbitrary. We stand in a long line, a, a godly heritage of men and women who've gone before us who have sought to faithfully apply Scripture to the context of the local church. So be encouraged by that continuity that you stand in. This is not an arbitrary faith. This is not something that we do simply out of tradition. It's something that we do because it's found and it's rooted and grounded and established in God's Word. Any additional questions or thoughts or comments on that before we move on? Very good. Well, um, Roman numeral four. And we're not going to get far here, but we are going to cover, Lord willing, everything prior to letter A under Roman numeral four. The polemicist. Does everybody remember what polemics is referring to? We talked about it last week. So apologetics is to make a defense of the faith to unbelievers. Polemics is to do what? No, that's polytheism. What was that, Hannah? Theological debate. Theological debate amongst who? It's among it's amongst self-identifying Christians. So think about this, guys. Apologetics is geared towards the unbeliever. Polemics is geared towards the the, the well, at least the self-identifying believer. Very important, guys, and to the listener. I use I love using the term self-identifying. Because just because somebody identifies as a Christian doesn't mean they truly are a Christian. And let me tell you this much. When Paul writes to the churches in the New Testament, he doesn't assume that every person in that congregation is saved. He recognizes they self-identify as Christians, so he gives them the judgment of charity. He calls them brethren broadly. But he doesn't believe that every person in that congregation is a believer. Neither should we. We should never assume that just because somebody identifies as a Christian or as a member of a local church, we should never assume ipso facto that they follow Christ. So we move forward now. Roman numeral four. First blank. In addition to persecution, the New Testament also warns Christians about the reality of false teachers. That's the blank there. The reality of false teachers. For example, Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders with these words found in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30. Somebody want to read that as it's found in your workbook? Somebody with their workbook want to read those two verses for us? Ellie, you want to take that? Yeah, 
So when I made the comment, don't just assume that everybody in the local church is a believer, that's, that sounds, or don't just assume that everybody who self-identifies as a Christian is a believer, that sounds pretty harsh, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, guys, that there, there are people who creep into the church who intentionally try to deceive people into thinking that they're actually believers when in reality they're not. They have an agenda. They may hold to heretical doctrine, thereby showing themselves not to be saved. They may have an agenda to corrupt a church body. Could be, uh, it doesn't have to be doctrinal corruption, though it's primarily about doctrine. Historically, it's about doctrine that corrupts a church. But it can be other ways. It can be manipulation. It can be greed. It can be different aspects of trying to undermine and destroy a church. But guys... It would be foolish of us to just ipso facto believe that every single person who claims to be a Christian is in fact a Christian. It's just not biblical. It's not wise. We just read it from there in Acts 20. Let me show you four other... um, Well, I guess we could say it like this. Let me show you four categories of heretical doctrine that these early Christian polemicists had to face... And I think as we're going to discover together, three of these four automatically disqualifies you from being a Christian. But these were people who self-identified as Christians during the patristic era. These were people who claimed to be followers of Christ, some of whom served in leadership positions in the church. But on the authority of Scripture, by the standard of Scripture, they, they weren't themselves true converts. You'll see those four blanks and corresponding paragraphs next to these heretical systems that we're going to talk about. The first one is Gnosticism. Gnosticism, spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism. Everybody get the spelling on that? Good, good. So who wants to read the paragraph that's next to Gnosticism? Wit, take that one, buddy. A diverse group of false movements that each claim to possess the secret of knowledge of salvation. The Greek word Gnosis means knowledge. Gnosticism was characterized by forms of dualism in which material things were viewed as inferior or evil in comparison to spiritual reality. As a result, Gnostics generally denied that Jesus had a real physical body. Instead, they wrongly claimed he, had, he only had the appearance of the body. Very good. So, Second John 7, let me just read that. John writes, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. John says, You cannot be a Christian if you hold to this false belief. The belief that Jesus did not come in the flesh. They didn't have a true body. He's directly confronting the heresy of Gnosticism in that portion of 2 John. Now, why do you think, I want to open this up for a brief discussion. Why do you think it's wrong? Why do you think it's erroneous to say that matter or a physical body is inherently bad or sinful? Why is it wrong to believe that? Michael? Yeah, because Jesus had a physical body, right? And that's what they're trying to... That's what they're trying to... Okay, explain that. Jesus made the body. What do you mean? Well, he made it in his 
made it in his image, right? So God doesn't have a body, but God deemed matter good, right? He cr- look, Literally, what is matter? Anything that takes up space and has mass. The whole universe is filled with matter. God declared that very good before the fall. So obviously there's nothing inherently wrong with matter or with the human body. In fact, what's the new heaven and the new earth going to be? It's going to be matter, right? There's nothing wrong with matter as such. Sin is the one, or the I should say sin is the reality that causes matter, causes our bodies to become bad, become deficient. But there's nothing intrinsically about that uh, matter, about a body that's wrong, that's sinful, that's deficient. God declared it as good in his creation. Well, that's the first ancient heresy. Second, Marcionism. Marcionism. M-A-R-C-I-O-N-I-S-M. Marcionism. Who wants to take that paragraph? Somebody with a workbook. A lot of workbooks out. Lily, go for it. Thank you for reading that, Lily. So how many of you have ever heard the critique of Christianity that the God in the Old Testament is just a God of wrath, the God in the New Testament is just a God of love? So obviously there's just this big contradiction in the Bible. Who's heard that critique of Christianity? Hannah at least has. I'm sure some of you guys, oh, Joanna and Morgan have, Thomas has. I've sure, I sure have heard that. Um, so where do you think that idea came from? You ever wonder? It goes all the way back to Marcion. So what Marcion did was he said, well, I like the God of love. I don't like that Old Testament God of wrath. He was an evil deity. And I don't like anything in the New Testament that talks about God being somehow connected to wrath. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to selectively take out parts of the Bible that I don't like. And that's going to be the new Bible. Yeah, that's what he did. Now, obviously, it, it didn't really work out too well for him because he was branded as a heretic. And it actually strengthened the church. Because what the church had to do, you know what the church had to do? Church had to say, hey, no, these are the books of the Bible that we, that we have received from God. So now we're going to figure out ways to defend them as coming from God. So the church was strengthened in the face of heresy and error they were able to refine their beliefs about the canon of Scripture. So we see Gnosticism and Marcionism. Next heresy we're going to look out is something that you guys have heard me reference on several occasions in previous lessons, and that's the heresy of modalism. Modalism. 
M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. Modalism, a view that is still very much alive and well. Who wants to take that paragraph? Uh, Sai, go for it. You got the fourth one, Hannah. In denial of the Trinity, that taught that sometimes God operates in the mode of the Father, sometimes in the mode of the Son, and sometimes in the mode of the Holy Spirit, but never three distinct co-eternal persons. According to this, according to this view, the Father became the Son at the interception. Incarnation. Incarnation. Sorry, leading to. I'll say it. Patripassianism. Father suffering has rejected as it was rejected as heretical by the early church. The primary proponent of modalism was Sabinus, who taught in Rome in the early third century. All right. So do you understand what what they're saying? If I can break that down for you. God was the Father. He was in the mode of the Father. So God is one God who is one person. And he manifests himself in different ways throughout redemptive history. He manifested himself in the way of the Father in the Old Testament. He manifested himself in the way of the Son in the Incarnation. And he now manifests himself in the mode of the Holy Spirit from Pentecost onward. Think of three masks. One God who wears three masks. He's a person that is revealing himself in three different ways. That's modalism. I, can, I know it's wrong, but I can almost see like, why people would think that. Because the, the concept of Trinity is really hard to like, understand. Yeah. I mean, it's wrong. Yeah. No, yeah, but, but hey, you know, I've, I've seen debates between Trinitarians and modalism, and I have... I have heard it, you know, the modalist loves going to the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one God. And Trinitarians say, amen. He is one God. Um, but uh, he, co- he, he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. But for God's own purposes, he has progressively revealed himself as he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's echoes of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's made more clear in light of New Testament revelation. But Trinity is from Genesis 1.1. Who, who, do you remember who I've told you all holds to modalism? Where is it big today? Presbyterians. Not Presbyterians. They're actually some of the most sound uh, theologians in the world. So, yeah. But they do start with a P. Pentecostals. Um, not, now, there, now, let me be careful here. There are... There are Two umbrellas of Pentecostals. There's those who hold to modalism. There's those who are orthodox, those who hold to the Trinity. Um, typically, you can identify the modalist Pentecostals because they, they will literally put on their sign of their church or on their website that they are oneness Pentecostals. They hold to, they hold to one God who exists as one person. Yeah, so during, well, during this, that's what the view leads to logically, because if it's just one person who used to be father and now he turns into the son, 
the logical conclusion that the early church would would um, would come to is what's well, it's the same person who's wearing a different mask, as it were. So that same person who was God in the Old Testament, it's the same person in the New Testament. He just he just looks a little bit different, but it's the same guy. It's the same God, Father. And then as spirit, it's, it's the same God that was there at the very beginning. He's just, he's just manifesting himself in a different way. Um, that, that's, that's, what that's what the workbook's saying is that was the logic of the early church there. So you can't consistently, because they would, they would try to say, well, God doesn't really change. He just changes the way he reveals himself. Well, they'd say, okay, well, if you hold that view, then it's God the Father in the Old Testament. It's got to be God the Father the whole way through. He's just revealing himself differently. That's what the early church was saying there. Make sense? Um, also, you know, if you look at um, the New Apostolic Reformation group, uh, growing uh, denomination in our day, they, they hold to oneness uh, beliefs as well, the modalistic beliefs as well. Um, I don't think there's any churches near us that are a part of the New Apostolic Reformation, but um, oneness Pentecostals are all over the place. There's one in the ward I know of. Um, so, anyways. Alive and well, but a heresy nonetheless. The fourth heretical view, Hannah, you're going to read the paragraph. It is Montanism. Montanism. M-O-N-T-A-N-I-S-M. Montanism. Hannah, read that for us, please. Asceticism. So it's interesting to note that historically, and hear me when I say this, I'm not saying it's impossible for God to speak audibly to anybody. He can do whatever he pleases. But historically, it has been deemed following the teaching of Montanus to say that people hear the audible voice of God. So really up until the, the rise of the charismatic movement in the early 20th century, up until that point, to claim to hear God speaking audibly was pretty much to put yourself in the line of Montanus. Very dangerous. Again, not saying that people don't hear God speak audibly. If God chooses to do that, he certainly can. But just know that it is a very dangerous trajectory to get down when you are constantly trying to hear the voice of God. And as we found here um, from the Montanists, even to the point of self-harm, that's what self-asceticism is referring to. They would harm themselves. They would starve themselves. They would sit out in the cold or out in the wilderness and, and, and try to have these ecstatic, um, mystical encounters with God to hear him speak to them, to hear them speak a new revelation to them. So um, this view Though not that extreme, it's very popular today. 
There are over 600 million Christians in the world today, or I should say my favorite term, not my favorite term, 600 self-identifying Christians in the world today who say, this is part of my doctoral thesis that I'm working on, they say as of 2020, it should be a normal expectation for believers to seek to hear God speak audibly. You should expect to hear God speak to you audibly. Over 600 million self-identifying Christians hold to that view. As of, as of 2020, as conducted by Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary study in conjunction with, I believe, Lifeway Research. But nevertheless, um, I, can, I can show you the study if anybody's interested in that. But um, yeah, so four heresies, four of which, to some degree or another, some more so than others, alive and well today, basically 1,900 years later. So here's my question by way of conclusion. Is it possible out of these four ancient heresies we've just covered, really briefly before we close in prayer and prepare to go to uh, corporate worship or to dismiss if you've already been to corporate worship, is it possible to hold any of those four heresies and be saved? What do y'all think? What says not at all? None of the four. Any other thoughts? Can you be a Christian? Can you be a, let's think about this way. Let's go through one. Let, let's simplify it. Can you be a Christian and believe that salvation is not through trusting in only in Jesus Christ? His perfect life, death, and resurrection. That salvation is not just believing in Christ, but you also got to obtain this higher secret knowledge. No, right? Because what does that mean? You have to work for that higher secret knowledge. Can't be a you can't be a gnostic in the historical sense of the term and be saved. Can you believe? Can you be a Christian and believe that the Old and New Testaments are not the Word of God? Not at all, right? Uh, can you believe? Can you be a Christian and believe that God's not Trinity? Not at all. Can you, believe, can you be a Christian and believe that God speaks audibly today to you? Yes. But you can. It it, it's a very dangerous track to go on. It can lead to gross error. It can lead to confusion. Uh, it can lead to division in the church. But my friends, just because somebody believes they hear God speaking audibly today does not ipso facto mean that they are not believers. Um, could mean that doesn't necessarily mean that. And the reason why that's different than the other three is because the other three heretical beliefs directly undercut core tenets of Christianity, undercuts our doctrine of salvation, it undercuts our doctrine of Scripture, it it undercuts our doctrine of God. But Montanism is more of an experiential... um, Belief. It's still it's still bad. It's still dangerous. It, it's still something we should caution our brother, our self-identifying brothers and sisters, to go down. But my friends, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian if you hold to a like view of Montanism. If you're in band, you probably should head over. I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, we got about four minutes left until 10:45. But let me close in prayer. And then the rest of us can join in the sanctuary. Our Lord, we come before you here at the conclusion of another Sunday school lesson. Humbled by your grace that you've shown to us.
Were it not for your grace, we would, we would not know you, Father. We would likely hold to one of these heretical beliefs or maybe some other heretical belief or maybe not even believe at all, Father. We may not express any belief in you at all. We could be doing who knows what at this moment on this day. But, Father, because you are rich in mercy, you have drawn us to yourself through the gospel. You have given us the gifts of faith and repentance so that we might respond to the gospel at the appointed time. And Father, you have equipped us to go out into this world to be your ambassadors and to bear witness to the goodness of your character and the salvation that you and you alone can provide through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, we would be good and faithful servants in all that you call us to do. I pray you'd keep us safe as we leave this place and that we would represent you well in the different domains of life that you've entrusted to us throughout the rest of this week. Bless our time of corporate worship now with the rest of FBC Edna as we leave this Sunday school lesson and for those who are departing to go home. Just pray for safe travels to them. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.